Hi, this is an unexpected launch, a podcast about stories and the people behind them. I'm speaking with people who have gracefully navigated unexpected life circumstances. These are stories of resilience, connection, and community. Stories of lives being reimagined, rewritten, and rebuilt. I'm Kirsten Duncan, and today's story is about Morhoff, who's a survivor. Living with stage four lung cancer, Morhoff is leading the conversation of what it's like to be living with an incurable cancer and navigating an unprecedented pandemic. Before I share my conversation with Morhoff, I want to express my profound gratitude to him for assisting me with the audio file. Sometimes in life, things don't go perfectly, such as the audio file of an incredible conversation turning up blank. Thanks to Morhoff's extra time in extracting the audio file in the expert technical expertise of my producer, Aiden Duncan, I'm thrilled that I'm able to share Morhoff's story with you. And away we go. Morhoff is a physician, a professor, a researcher, and an author. The youngest of nine, born in Syria, Morhoff immigrated to the United States after graduating from medical school. Three and a half years ago, he was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. In the process of trying to understand his cancer journey and life's meaning, he interviewed others with the same diagnosis. His research has been published in medical journals, and the conversations are summarized in his book, Roads to Meaning and Resilience with Cancer. 40 Stories of Coping, Finding Meaning, and Building Resilience While Living with Incurable Lung Cancer. Morhoff has also written a reflective, thought-provoking, and compelling memoir, Being Authentic, which will be published at the end of May. Morhoff's memoir doesn't simply recount his extraordinary life. He probes us to consider authenticity, privilege, community, passion, and purpose. With the COVID-19 pandemic, Morhoff is driving important conversation. Morhoff, welcome to an unexpected launch. Thank you for having me. Recently, you were diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. Can you share what it was like in the moment that you received that diagnosis? Yeah, I can. Yes, it, it was at the doctor's office, the pulmonologist, and he was kind to give it to me uh, slowly and to take his time. He first shared the images, the x-rays and the CAT scan, and then he, uh, he went further to share that there were cancer cells in the fluids around the lung. And I knew what that meant being a physician myself. He gave me time to pause and to, to feel it. And I, after a few moments of silence, I cried. After crying for a little bit, I said, okay, so now what are we going to do? What's next? I reflect on that and I can see uh, sadness was definitely big. Uh, in a sense, when you receive a diagnosis of cancer, that's likely that advanced stage four when the fluids around the lungs means prognosis is bad and uh, and all the thoughts about what that meant and its implications were coming to my mind um, so there was the loss especially that I was by myself there and also also there was the attitude of what's next in the sense of what can we do about this and is this really the end or is there something else? Is there glimmers of hope? Those were my initial thoughts. With COVID-19, many visits are now being conducted by telehealth. And when patients are going into the clinic or the hospital, they are not allowed to bring a visitor with them. 
So individuals are receiving devastating news either by telehealth or, or, or by themselves. What advice do you have for healthcare providers who are managing patients with cancer during this pandemic? I think that giving the diagnosis is actually probably probably hard. I won't say as hard for the provider as it is for the patient, but it is also devastating for the providers, especially that we come to to be doctors, bringing our own expert experiences and our own life stories. So many of those providers have family members who deal with the illnesses. So recognizing that. Um, taking a breath when you walk into the uh, into the visit to keep that under check. Being mindful also that um, it's not just about the disease, it's about its implication and impacts on, uh, on the person's life course moving forward. So having a space to, while I, when it was my own experience, my immediate question was what's next? I think having a space for the person to, um, you know, to deal with it, to process it, to to feel it, and to see how it's going to impact all their lives are also relevant. Um, uh, asking the person how they're doing, asking the person whether actually they're ready to receive a diagnosis uh, when you're meeting them, I think becomes important. Making sure if they if they are the ones who I went by myself to my appointment, but if that person likes to be with family, I think making sure that. Uh, they're going to have the support that they, they need to have. Asking, hey, is this a time to share with me some difficult news? Um, and uh, giving it to them slowly, uh, taking the time and providing care. You're in a unique position. As a physician, you knew the moment that you heard there were cells in the fluid surrounding your lungs that you had stage four cancer. Yet now you're a patient how do you think being a physician impacted processing your diagnosis? Yeah, I think the knowledge is very important. You know immediately the implications, uh, the numbers uh, that are given about prognosis and chances of, uh, of success or failure, uh, they're available to you and you comprehend them easily. So you have that. You also have access to other resources, and I think that's particularly important in making the experience potentially more bearable. You have access to, to back doors. You have connections. You can get uh, tests done faster. You know they're out you know the routes in and, and out so that that makes the experience more bearable for many people uh, on the other hand uh, you're losing some uh, something big something important something serious if the if the diagnosis is devastating such as that you won't be able to practice and do what you want to do you're suddenly you're moving from being the patient to, from being the doctor to being the patient and that can be heavy for many people who are trained to just care for others and they uh, train to to not engage with their vulnerability and that can so that can be devastating uh, losing that role make uh, make the, the the work the labor to reconstruct a new identity particularly challenging most people who go to become doctors spend years and years training for that so you're likely not a doctor and something else you're not doctor and and uh, and, a, and, and a person who developed a well reconstructed constructed identity that you can just shift quickly to it. So the loss can mean losing everything. That's that's why illness that's that serious can be devastating. But at the same time, those apply to also to, to many other people. So there are some uniquenesses, but uh, the, the experience in its essence is a human experience of struggle. And doctors, just like others, struggle with it. How has being diagnosed with cancer impacted how you treat your own patients? You are still treating patients, is that correct? 
much. Yes, I am. I am now on telehealth, health, but before that, I, I was seeing people in, in person. Um, it did impact how I treat patients. Of course, uh, I became more sensitive to, to cancers as diseases, uh, to the diagnosis of those conditions. So those come to my mind in a more salient way, probably, I would say, uh, in a sense, uh, as you probably know, cancers do not always present with, with they don't, don't come with you know a title on them. They come with symptoms that are vague, and uh, in a sense vague, such as for example, lung cancer comes with a cough. Well, common cold comes with a cough. So how can you tell cold from cancer? I think having a cancer myself made me more sensitive to those serious uh, diseases. Also, I became more serious as I'm living the experience and I, in my research, talked to people living those experiences. I'm sensitive to the impact on the person's day-to-day experience, day-to-day lived life. So the, the disease is not a disease that affects the body. It's uh, it's a condition that reshape uh, all aspect of someone's life. Uh, it affects the psyche, it affects relationships with others. It affects our identity and all those are important for the person. So when I take care of people, I make sure that uh, I would want to open spaces for the person to to bring those uh, aspects to the conversations and, uh, and when providing care, to not just focus on the disease, but to see the person as a person as a whole. I think that's such a gift. Healthcare providers are incredibly busy and oftentimes all they have the bandwidth for is to see the disease and the patient with that disease, forgetting their illnesses in the context of a life that healthcare providers don't often have a window into. So that's such a gift to have a unique perspective and your patients are so lucky. So you've gained perspective having lived with lung cancer for three and a half years. What advice do you have for individuals who've just been diagnosed with an incurable cancer? Yeah, so incurable cancers, uh, advanced stages, the person needs to remember that big C is not a death sentence. Uh, There are tons of treatments out there and the person could hold on hope. I think that's that's essential. Um, The condition is serious often, especially if it is advanced, then... uh, uh, finding, uh, learning about it, finding resources so the person can access trustable information become really important. This is a task not just for the person themselves, this is also for their family and their loved ones to help them uh, understand the condition better and understand the treatments that are available. I also would recommend finding other people who have, who have lived in that experience, who are also thoughtful and kind and and uh, informed with good knowledge. Uh, living around or being around people who have the condition makes the person not feel isolated or alone. Uh, also, people who have lived the experiences can share tips and advice that often can be useful. Uh, of course, making, and this is the, would be my third recommendation, making uh, sure to have a trusted healthcare team that you can go back to to manage the care but also to to consult when uh, you want to to consider this or that strategies to live with or with the condition i think those are probably my big advice you've touched on this a little you mentioned your sense of identity in reading your memoir your sense of identity has been challenged throughout your life from being the youngest of nine and trying to differentiate yourself and discover who you were outside of your brothers and sisters 
not wanting to be simply defined by your grades in school and to becoming an immigrant and what that meant. How has your sense of identity evolved throughout your cancer journey? Yeah, the first, uh, it's a very good question. The first part of the experience was that of loss. Uh, you're not just uh, worried about losing yourself, your life, but also a loss of, uh, of access to doing what's uh, most essential to you. For me, that was, uh, was my job my, um, as, a, as a doctor, as a care provider. So that, uh, that needed to, 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 to change and I needed to come to terms with, uh, with some of those losses. Obviously, I was fortunate to be able to, to go back to do some of what I was doing. I was doing full scope of family medicine, delivering babies, doing hospital medicine and uh, all of that. I'm now only doing outpatient. So that there is some that you're losing and some that you're reconciling uh, with, with that loss. So I think that's, that's, that's part of the, of the change and around the identity. But also, there are changes around the identity in the sense of, of who you are in the context of where you, you, you belong as well. The kind of relationships that you want in your life, the kind of your, uh, your life path, your life course. Um, for me, I was, I was a single guy and I uh, wanted to stay single. Um, and but then soon after and soon after that becomes particularly tiring you know when you're going around to tell people your story and then your struggle and you face with uh, this judgment this prejudice or this rejection becomes harder further you start to appreciate uh, the intimate authentic conversations so your identity as a as a bachelor let's say uh, or as a person who's living life alone uh, start to be challenged and start to be heavy to, to, to carry. So you start to change and experiment with, with other forms of connections and other forms of, uh, of, of, of way to, to have a relationship and to live uh, your own life. Third, for me, taking in the identity of the patient was also a, a transformative uh, uh, notion. In a sense, I'm not just a doctor, I'm a person who has cancer through which I can connect with a large community of people living through that same experience. Uh, that became particularly relevant because actually it liberated me to even connect with, uh, with the Syrian struggle through a personal equivalent. And now I am dealing with, with a serious illness. Uh, at many points throughout, I thought it was terminal. In that sense, uh, that devastation, that personal devastation is not different than the devastations many people have had. So through the experience of struggle, you could connect uh, to others uh, who are also struggling. I was able to connect to the, to the Syrian struggle and, and turn my head back to see it because I was also suffering. So that, that allowed me to regain back that identity. And I think those are, those are some of the, of the important gains that I've gone through. Yes, you, you reconstruct some, you reshape some, you go back and forth around who you are and how you want to connect with others. There are growth that you achieve along that way. And that is particularly important for who the person is and who their identity is. You write in your book, Stories of Cancer, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a subtraction from your identity, but in addition. And when I look at the body of work that you've created in the last three and a half years, not only from a medical perspective, but from a community perspective in both the oncology and Syrian communities, 
it illustrates that yes, we do feel this sense of loss of who we are, and yet there are incredible new opportunities that had we not suffered, we might not have been aware of in the same way that, that we are, or able to bring ourselves to those struggles in the way that we do. That, that is very true. It's hard to, to imagine what my life course would be without cancer. And I think I would have been all right as well. So <laughs> I may not have that urgency to, to do, but I think I was, I was working on important stuff as well that probably had different subjects and different topics. I would, I would still insist that any cancer patients probably would say, uh, take my cancer away and bring me back my old self. It's not, uh, I don't celebrate uh, my cancer in that sense. I was given a difficult situation and I'm trying to do my best with it. Um, I wish that everybody with cancer to be, uh, to be cured if possible and to have that disease turn into a chronic condition where they can live and carry on with their loved one and manage with the best quality of life. I think the urgency uh, with the condition pushes the person to try to make sense and try to squeeze their life project in the shorter time that they perceive they have left for them. And that was my, my experience. And that was why I've been working on certain projects with, uh, with a faster pace. At the same time, that comes with sacrifices. That comes with, uh, uh, let's say, you know, when you're, when you're spending 14 days to write a memoir, for example, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're in a prison. You're not connecting with others. You're, you're, you're losing uh, on things. And I have lost on things. Um, and then these are my choices and these are what I've done. And I think many people with cancer make those decisions and they're aware and intentional with how they're living their lives. That intentionality has probably become more salient in that person's mind. Mm-hmm. So about 15 years ago, your mom died in a car accident and you realized at that moment how fragile life is And you also realized how arbitrary death is. And with your diagnosis, you were again confronted with with these particular concepts. And so I'd love to know what you discovered about yourself and the concept of life and death throughout the process of interviewing others and writing your book. So... Through confronting this and writing, through writing the book and interviewing others, I've learned that our shared experiences are probably more than our uniqueness. Uh, What I was going through, many people were also going through. We're confronting the same or similar uh, situations. I've also learned about uh, myself that there are is a lot that I need to learn to, to comprehend and come to grasp that experience. The experience that I was going through and that which others were also going through is quite challenging to, to the person at multiple levels. It's complex, if not hyper-complex. So to, to come to, to grasp it and to deal it and to deal with it and to process it, it requires growth that I needed to do, especially if I'm putting myself out with the challenge of, of being with others as they're doing that or <clears throat> or being with others as 
I'm putting together the stories of the multiple to, to reconstruct meaning and uh, self-understanding that others can use. And there's a lot of growth that needs to be, to be, to be achieved. So it's a process that I go back and forth with uh, the sense of, uh, of being out to, to connect with the actual and then having a space to, to learn and make sense of them. And that's probably an important lesson that I've learned. So initially when you started your interviews of the other individuals with cancer, you were exploring the concept of strength. However, as you approached your discussions and as you were talking with these other individuals, you ultimately decided to focus instead on resilience. Can you share your thoughts on the evolution of the concept from strength to resilience? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Strength is not an unproblematic notion, and while the person can be entitled to to use it and to live their life aspiring to be strong and to grow into that, um, it's used in the culture in multiple ways that can be can be troubling. There's the toxic masculine person who goes around bragging for being strong and. Uh, and non-defeatable. There are the fascists who are also using that notion to to provoke for for nations uh, the, the notion of of this uh, imaginable uh, superiority where where the might and the and the and the impossibility of being defeated and brought down. Those same ones are actually calling and 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 poking or or. Uh, uh, or using the vulnerability and the weakness of the vulnerable uh, to again to leverage and inflate an image of themselves as strong and mighty, and those are problematic uh, ways. So when I talk about strength, I have to be mindful how to distinguish myself from those who are bragging about being strong and uh, and. Uh, and punching down on the vulnerable who is weak. Strength does invite the its opposite, the notion of weakness, and makes the person uncomfortable with it. Because we're likely not going to be always strong. Anyone, even the mighty, is probably one day is going to be you know, they're going to die before that. They're probably going to vanish into into state of, of not being uh, close to the might that they aspire to always have. Because we are going to not be strong all the time, it was important for me to open space for, for the other state. Resilience is an important notion. Resilience is something at least immediately comes to to tell the person that uh, this is something that you develop over time. This is something you you celebrate and acknowledges that you are struggling. You are struggling to be resilient. You are struggling because of that you are resilient. You have an adverse situation that actually beat you down and then you came up and you are resilient. So it, it implies and it has within it the notion of its, uh, its opposite, the notion of struggling, the notion of the possibility of not being uh, well or not doing well. So the resilience is particularly relevant. Of course, we can fall into the same problem as an I am born resilient, have always been resilient. And that's also problematic because no one is. I mean, you've been a baby one one day, you know. So the baby is not, I mean, babies are resilient, but I mean, you can break a baby too. So no one is born uh, mighty. So that's, that's particularly important. When after And after you think about that, you could actually be entitled to say, no, actually, I, you know, I, I, I 
value empowerment and I value the strength that the person comes and carry on, you know, the strength of strength of the of the soul, the strength of holding a position. Those become become entitlements for the person. But that position is not shouldn't be immediately available and shouldn't be the end uh, and shouldn't be dealt with as 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 uh, as that and only. Uh, so we have to be to be to be mindful about it. Well, I really liked, I, I liked this concept because I think that when you're struggling, whether it's uh, from an illness or from a loss, there's this pressure to be strong and to, to always make it seem that you're, you're doing it fine, you're handling it. And I just really liked this concept that you always have to be strong. It, it's fine to, to feel that you don't have it all under control and, and that doesn't imply weakness. And so I, I really liked that invitation to not put pressure on ourselves to feel strong and think think of it more as resilience and how you're how you're managing because anybody who's suffering, not every day are they going to be strong. But it just and I think that it's those days when you're not very strong that you sometimes you grow more, you learn about yourself. And so it's okay not to be strong. And I love that that message in your book. And I think that's so important for um, anybody who's struggling with an illness that you don't have to be strong, that, that that's okay. Um, another thing that I was really struck by in, in your book was how differently individual approached their diagnosis from either ascribing a meaning to where they gathered their resilience. And because of that, for friends and family who want to be supportive of somebody who has cancer, knowing that some people want you to call and say every day, how are you doing? Other people are not going to want to have that type of attention. How can family and friends best support somebody who is managing a cancer diagnosis? I think first and foremost, let the person uh, steer the ship. Let the person guide you uh, through the process. Uh, listen, be open, ask them what can be helpful for them. And ask them in a genuine way, um, with curiosity and with openness in a space in which they can actually share about particular things that they want done or not done. It's not the kind of question of like, hey, I'm here for you whenever you need me and bye. Uh, more the question of how are you doing in a genuine way, in a, in a non, uh, in a way that doesn't squeeze the person to to think that they're miserable, in a way that opens space for them to to talk and to share. Uh, be there to listen and be there to to have space for them to 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 share as well. Um, also, many people as they're dealing with those uh, with those conditions, the difficult conditions, cancers or other uh, diseases that alienate the person, they want to be included. So when you're when you're having your joyful moment, uh, do not just assume that the person is not capable of, of participating just because they are dealing with their own struggle. They want to be invited. They can judge for themselves whether they can or they cannot. So having having that uh, connectedness and connecting with them in a, in a normal way uh, as they define uh, for themselves and for others, I think would be another uh, helpful thing. They need, they have a lot of needs that are just, you know, practical stuff. So uh, I think offering those, offering to provide those for the person will become uh, often appreciated. But also the texts that come 
unexpected as in, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you. It also goes a long way. Thank you for sharing that because I think so many people want to help, but oftentimes don't know how in that space of not knowing what to say or how to do it. They don't reach out and, um, you know, individuals want to be reached. All of us want that, that connection. And thank you for, for sharing that. Something that, that's been up to me for a long time is the discordance between how physicians and patients view the patient experience. And when you first met an oncologist after you received your diagnosis, that individual walked into the room and, and didn't ask you, how are you doing? In a moment, you felt less of a person. And as a physician who, who is also a patient, how can we help healthcare providers who often are overworked and maybe lacking resources? How can we help them better understand the patient experience? How do we help foster genuine conversation and dialogue? That's really a good question. And I'm, I'm glad that you framed it this way. How can we help the doctors? We as the patients helping the doctor. This is, this is the opposite of how it is actually viewed usually. Doctors want to view themselves as we are going there to help people. Well, no, let's, let's help you a little bit. And I think we have a lot to offer. And we can broaden that to say we are helping you as the community. Yes, we medicine have done a lot of good things in terms of managing conditions and diseases. But uh, in medicine, we can do better better in terms of addressing the person's suffering and their struggle. And the community can provide some tips for that. So thank you for asking the question in that way. We can help the doctors by first sharing our stories and creating spaces in the community for the patients to tell stories and remind us that they are people just like us. So by bringing uh, the marginalized patient groups to the center, you're reminding the doctors who care for them that uh, those are people just like everyone else. So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, I think by bringing the stories of the doctors as people, become also important. This is particularly tricky now. People, Doctors are celebrated as heroes, and they are heroes. Uh, they are heroes first because they are humans. Because they are humans, they are uh, they're struggling. They're in, with, they struggle with emotions. They struggle with existential experiences with COVID. They struggle with taking those uh, diseases home. So they are people just like every other person, and they can get sick and they can die, actually, with COVID. Many physicians, nurses, staff are, are being affected by that that, uh, that illness. So bringing the stories of, uh, of those providers as people also bring us all on a, on a leveled ground uh, where we can start exercising our capacity to have a genuine conversation, conversation between people. Yes, doctors are squeezed into 15 minutes visit where they have to do a lot of things and manage multiple health conditions. And that's true. Um, the oncologists, particularly mine, for example, in that interactions, in that interaction felt he needed to, 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 to address the medical problem that potentially can be life-threatening. So question like, how are you, was not as salient. Um, but for me as a person, that is important. And for me as, as a person with a disease, that is important. Uh, I think we can do both. It doesn't take really a lot of time to do some simple things. So how can we, and I'm challenging here, the educators, and I am one, educators in, in healthcare, how can we 
train doctors to use efficient uh, strategies or efficient ways of being uh, authentically involved, engaged, uh, and still also have spaces for themselves to care for, for themselves. When you're becoming permeable and open to the pain and suffering of others, when you talk about, hey, how are you? Tell me about what you're struggling with. It, there is some emotional energy, a lot of emotional energy that's being expended. So those providers who we are asking and demanding that they be present and talk to us people as people. Uh, we also need to provide them with care and support as people when they are expending their emotional energy. Yeah, I think physician burnout is something that we've been talking about for, for a long time. And now with COVID, uh, you know, that becomes even, even more important to be about how we are supporting healthcare providers because for them to support their patients, they first care for themselves. Yes, very true. You just, so we've talked about this a little bit, how isolating it is to be diagnosed with cancer and how important connection is. So during this pandemic, when social distancing is an absolute must for individuals with cancer, how do we best maintain contact? Yeah, that's actually a very good question, very important uh, topic. Um, I think people are figuring out day after day as we've been now, let's say, it's pandemic been for almost two months, a little over two months. Um, I think people are finding ways. The um, online support groups are active. The uh, uh, Zoom meetings have become a norm. Uh, Skype uh, chats, FaceTime, all those are really... Uh, making things better and more bearable. Um, there's still disparity. There are still people who do not have access to those things, and that is a problem. We're talking about uh, telemedicine and, uh, and phone check-ins with patients. There are still groups that do not have access to that, and that is problematic. Um, for those who are privileged to have uh, those uh, resources, I think uh, leveraging them to their maximum abilities become, become an important thing to stay connected. Um, uh, one can think of, of what, uh, as a framework, what are the things or the practices that we used to have when we were in person? We can also ask what are the uh, purposes that we served in those interactions? Those become two questions. And then now we can think of, okay, well, now we cannot do that, but we have online strategies. How can we substitute for those? So I'm talking here about needs. I'm talking about uh, coping strategies for community. And I think a lot of work, a lot of thinking needs to be done and put in those areas. People with cancer struggle because they're alone, but actually many of them have lived, if you're on chemotherapy for a while, you probably have practiced some social distancing already. So um, um, they may come to this experience with more resilience uh, than many others. But at the same time, the question becomes, okay, so what are their needs then and how can we be by their sides? Their need is not that they, they, may, they, are, they are isolated, but they also... Uh, still needs, you know, to, to get their groceries, to get their uh, uh, their basic stuff that they cannot do when uh, when they were able to to leave the house. So there are some some thinking that needs to be done on individual level and also on communities to find those specific needs. And at, again, at a uh, 
individual level, basic basic sustainability level, but also at uh, the level of the emotional ones, so we can address them. So, speaking of of having uh, cancer during during this pandemic. Can you share a little bit what it's like with cancer? And I also want to bring in a question. You have a really interesting piece on uh, who can decide which individuals get care in a time of COVID. So as we think about access to care, and that's something that you've talked a little bit about, um, and just what it's like to be living with cancer during COVID, an experience of what that's like. Uh, I can speak of myself, I can speak of the communities that I've talked to. Since COVID started, I've interviewed about 30 people and talked about their experiences, many of them from the cancer community, actually, but some are beyond. Um, For myself, I take pills uh, every day, so I don't have to take chemo infusions. So that's, um, I'm spared that. I get my tests every three months, for every three to six months, so I, I'm not due yet, so I'm fine from that standpoint. I have a job and I have food. I can order groceries and uh, they come to me, so I'm fine from that standpoint. At the same time, imagine somebody who needs to go for for chemotherapy and they're having to, at times, to make decisions whether to continue on chemo so they can weaken their immune system and become more vulnerable to the virus or stop the chemos to let the cancer take over potentially so they can be stronger while they're fighting the virus. It's like, which one do you want to to take in? Which death do you choose? That's very difficult questions. It's not always to the extreme of, uh, of you know, it's going to be a, a death sentence, you know, choose your poison, but it is uh, to the psychologically for many people can feel like that. So that's that's one challenge. The other challenge is you know if you're getting the disease, you're going to be impacted more. So you have to, to take extra precautions. That means more isolation. Some people are staying in their rooms, uh, even isolating from their family and loved one. When you know that you're not going to live for very long, those human connections, those experiences become something that you value the most. So your loss is bigger when you're isolating yourself. You are worried if you get the illness, that you're not going to survive. So there is fear and existential threat that's real in there. Um, You're also, at some point, that was more serious, and I think in parts of the country it's probably still is serious, and others that passed the the peak and they have more ventilators now, it's probably less of a concern. Um, When talks about rationalizing care, you worry that you have a disease that's uh, serious, you know, stage four lung cancer. Well, historically it was terminal, you die in six months, but now people are living for years and years and you worry that the person who's going to make the decision looking at you when you are obviously needing a ventilator that means you're sick uh, looking at you and then looking at your chart to see okay stage four lung cancer now they're really sick are they going to give you the ventilator or they're going to give it to somebody else who's you know in their 30s who are healthy uh, otherwise so that becomes that's a source of 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 of, uh, of fear and resentment as well, especially when you're looking at, okay, well we are isolate, we're worried, we're isolating ourselves, but then the ones who are taking it lightly are the ones who are healthy. So then you feel like, okay, well others are going to 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 take it lightly and to live life as normal, uh, contribute to spreading the infection more, and then I'm going to get sick, and if I need it, I won't be helped. That's a source of resentment, and I think that was, uh, for some time, it was very salient in the cancer community. It's not as much now, and I 
thank goodness, because uh, um, I think resources are now more available as the pandemic is, is receding. Yet, I think the moral question is very is salient, and there is that that trauma from it um, that needs to be uh, to be addressed moving forward. Uh, back to the impact on the cancer. Patients again. If you're if you're needing your treatment, uh, you worry about leaving the house. Uh, if you need your groceries, you probably are more more careful. So there are needs in that area around on the health system side. How do you provide safe <clears throat> um, safe uh, uh, space in the sense or safe. Um, treatment, whether that's at home or whether that's in the care facilities for those individuals so they feel like they're not being exposed unnecessarily. But when it comes to uh, providing the day-to-day uh, -day needs, I think how can we as a community uh, come to provide those needs for, for the people? You've talked throughout our discussion about privilege. This is something that you began thinking about at a young age and becomes a recurring theme throughout your life. You write about being able to receive fresh bread from the Syrian bakery because of your family standing and about being accepted to medical school. And you note that there were conditions for your success that weren't available to others. Health disparity is something that those of us in healthcare are well aware of. However, it's not really been brought to the forefront. I'd love to know your thoughts on privilege because I know it's something that's important to you and is such an important conversation. Yeah, I mean, thinking of, of, of personal achievement uh, in a culture that celebrates individualities, a lot of the credit the person claimed to themselves and others who want to, uh, to, who aspire to, to achieve things, also give to that person at times in a non-fair way. So if you're doing really well, you say, oh, I've done it myself, you know. And if others if look at that person who's doing very well and ask, how did you do it? How did you do it? Well, for a big part of, of our achievement is not really our own doing. I went to medical school, but I was the sixth doctor in my family. I'm actually the ninth person with a doctorate in my family. So I was I was surrounded by uh, by by people who have done that before and who have shown me how to do it. For my mom, it was uh, it was an expectation. You know, this is this is not an, a choice for me to study or not to study. In other contexts, that was not the case. You know, if you're if you're having to to work to sustain a family at age of 15 in my in my back home in town uh, you don't have time to study and if you're the only one in your in your family who have gone to school you don't have the push or the pressure or even the desire or aspiration to to to, to finish it or to go to college that's not part of, uh, of what's expected or even uh, or even desired or or even allowed in some spaces because the priorities are to maintain or to achieve the basic needs that leads to a disparity think of if two uh, babies born today to 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 two different families do we have the conditions for them to get them to the same end point in 20 years uh, you can take you can do that experiment and get those babies from different contexts you can immediately predict that this is not really the case that they're not going to get to the same point 
uh, if you're if you're born in a in a poverty, actually, if you're born to a certain zip code, uh, your 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 future income can be predicted in with quite reliable way. Uh, your your achievements in college would also be dictated by whether you have uh, time to study, you have family mentorship, uh, people uh, who've gone through that before you, um, and uh, and all those all those conditions I call them or. People call them conditions for success are not distributed equally among people. This is a reason for disparity. So it's not the person's doing when somebody achieves and brag about their successes. Uh, the question for that person is, what was available to you, and what did you do uh, with what's available for you? That was that was for me an important matter. This is a, this is a choice that I take as well. In a sense, uh, uh, if I am if I have conditions available for me, if I'm able to to do those, then becomes for me the moral question is: uh, Are those available to others? And if they're not available to others, this is not right. And then becomes becomes uh, with a sense of moral responsibility: What can we do to make those conditions more fair? Uh, justice in the sense of fairness, the sense of equity, is uh, I would consider the highest value. And uh, you can look around in our society and, and beyond. Um, it's definitely not maintained. We're far from even getting close. And this is affecting some basic foundational stuff with, uh, with a, a pandemic of COVID. Um, people uh, of color, uh, people who are marginalized, people, the poor are dying more than the ones who have privileges. If you have a job, if you can, if you have a house, uh, you can just, you know, hunker in and be safe, let, uh, let the pandemic pass and you'll be okay. If you're an essential worker, if you're taking the public transportation, if you're living in a crowded house, you don't have access to any of that and you're likely going to be affected by it. If you historically have suffered from chronic conditions because of less access to, to health care, you're also going to suffer consequences from COVID. This disparity is now and has been actually, it says now with COVID, it's just becoming more clear to us because we're seeing a large number of people. Those people have been dying for years now, but now we're seeing all of them dying at the same time. And that's, and that's, that's troubling for me, troubling for many others. Um, and, um, and it's troubling that it is actually not troubling for some or actually many. So I think that needs to be called out. That needs to be coming to, that need to be brought to the forefront. That disparity in general, health disparity in particular, is a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that comes through in, in all of the different things that, that you've done is that you have a curiosity and, and now you have a sense of urgency However, you've always been driven your, your entire life. You had this sense of urgency. You, you know, you've talked a little bit about um, the impact of cancer and you don't have the same strength that, that you used to have. So what's giving you the strength to live vibrantly with cancer and to continue sparking really important conversation, driving your quest for, for information? I think it has, your question has two, um, two parts, or to answer it, I would have to think of the two parts. I would think of the topics that I'm engaged in, and then I would think back of what I'm doing around them. Uh, when you have a serious illness, 
let's 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 put this mental exercise. If if I if I'm told that I have five hours to live, then what I do for myself as an individual becomes trivial. You know, I mean, you can you can eat all the apples that you have in the world in the fridge. Well, you don't have time to go out uh, to, and that can be really good. But I think. I think many of us would would then think, okay, well, what can I leave for the ones who are staying? Because that becomes uh, that person is going to vanish into nothingness, and what's going to be left are people like that person. In a sense, those in a sense, I think the person has an absolute value in themselves as living being. So you're going to be left or going to be leaving behind those individuals who have absolute values while you're finding few minutes or hours and you're just going to be vanishing. So then becomes the center of attention. The center of focus becomes not on the person and fulfillment of their own interest and their own uh, desires, their own pleasures. It becomes about how can we, I make the world a better place for those who are staying. And that concerns me. That uh, occupies my mind. Uh, if I'm not going to live for very long, then how can I uh, make the time that I live here spent towards making that world a better place for those who are staying after I'm no longer here? Then that becomes that becomes an, an urge. That becomes an uh, uh, becomes a, a principle that uh, that coaches a, a, a life project. The uh, the matters that I'm engaged in also uh, when you when you bring them to the value when you bring them to, to to contrast to how you want the world to be and when you reflect also on the privileges and what you are given become also a reason for uh, for the person to be angered frustrated or uh, or troubled and I am I am angered when uh, things are not uh, done right and things are not well. By that I'm saying when there are inequities or uh, uh, injustices and when there are, in, in Syria for example, the, the criminal regime is, is, is going on and on. Those, those matters uh, become, uh, become troubling and with a sense of urgency you feel like you want to do what you can. Uh, I don't have a lot to really do and I'm and always there is the feeling that I'm not doing enough. I I have my words and I have my my hands to to type them and that's really what I'm doing. I'm, I'm writing and I have an urgency to 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 write and to speak. In your memoir, you wrote something that intrigued me. You said that the metaphor of malignancy can be applied to Syria. Can you share more about this? What is cancer? Cancer is. Uh, a bunch of cells that go rogue and uh, expand, take control, and overwhelm the capacity of the person, uh, devastate uh, all aspects of that person's life, their body, their energy, their sources, their um, their health, their psyche, their and in the end, they kill them. That's exactly what the regime in Syria did. Um, those are Syrians. They're part of the community, uh, yet as, as a group, as um, I'm talking here about uh, Bashar Assad and uh, his family his, uh, and his allies, as a group um, gained power and, and uh, took over, proliferated, and used the country as, as a farm, as uh, as thing that they own. They sucked the wealth of the country, they... Uh, 
sucked the resources. And when people uh, stood, took to the street and said no, and said we've, we're fed up, we had enough, we want dignity, we want our freedom, the regime used all brutality available to them. They used all weapons and all uh, uh, jets and uh, explosive barrels to, 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 to kill anything that's standing to kill the people, to destroy cities, and to force people down to, to, to slavery. And uh, that's exactly what cancer is. And they, again, after uh, after time when the revolution and people were, were having hope that the situation is going to change, the cancerous regime took over, and now it's taken over almost everything and back to to the same state of oppression that we had before, and actually to a way worse because... Uh, Hundreds of thousands are killed. Hundreds of thousands are, are are abducted, and we don't know anything about them. And over millions, and many millions, are actually refugees. That's uh, that's cancer in a state of, uh, of really advanced and advanced progression. And something needs to be done to it. Uh, something needs to be done to 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 bring it back under control and to to bring justice. I, it's. Uh, it's devastating to, 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 to everyone in the, in the community and there seems like there's no way out and that's, and realistically that may be the case in the next uh, few or many years. But there's still hope and we still hold on to, to the notion that we want justice and we demand it and we want it now. And uh, we want those criminals to be brought to a fair trial so we can, uh, we can make this uh, period of, of many years, uh, over 40 years of, of oppression, part of our past, as the community reconstructs their, their identity, their constitutions, their civil life, and their political life, to come to, 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 to provide better place for people to live their authentic being and be, uh, be citizens where they are respected in democracy. Thank you for sharing that. As we think about authenticity, that's something that you've struggled with at various time points in your life. Can you share how you came to the title of your memoir, Being Authentic? Yeah, I, as, as a person, we struggle with authenticity. We, um, I say in the book that authenticity is not something that we achieve once and for all. It's, uh, it's a demand, it's a question that's faced with a person with every word we say, with every act we do. So by definition, when we act, we are acting at varied level of authenticity. We can always demand of ourselves to be more authentic and to be more authentic and to be authentic. And by definition, that means we had encounters in which we were not. Uh, so that's that was, uh, and I'm not an exception, and I, I shared in the book many of those examples to say that um, as a person, and any person, uh, we have capacity to do wicked things and... Um, and we need a space for us to process our wickedness so they can, again, restore uh, our entitlement to being authentic again and to carry on. That title, because it is so essential, it's the essence of who we are as people, and it is, uh, it's a judgment or it's a judgment in the sense of, uh, of a criteria that we can apply to any act. It is uh, essentially human. 
I wanted I wanted to choose that framework, that concept, to 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 develop my work itself as an example of something that others can also dialogue with. As I shared, if you're if you you think that person if the person thinks that they're not going to be living for long, it becomes less really relevant to share stories as as an individualistic stories or as stories about an individual. I'm not celebrating my life, and uh, I have a lot of moments that I cannot even celebrate, even if I wanted. Um, I am sharing stories so others can uh, can see me, know me as a person, but also that they can. And this is the utmost uh, fulfillment of the purpose of my book, my memoir, is that others can feel, okay, I want to share my story too. I said that explicitly in my memoir that uh, I believe the project humanity constitute is constituted of those memoirs, of those uh, uh, narratives, those stories that we are living them, whether we share them explicitly or we are just choosing to live them. I think if we share our stories more, we make accessible to many others uh, modes of beings and uh, uh, narratives or frameworks or thoughts or experiences that everyone can choose to dialogue with and they can choose to learn from or they can choose to leave, leave behind. But I think our project Humanity is constituted of all those uh, stories that everyone can share. So by sharing my story, I am participating and I'm also inviting others to participate. By saying that I want to be authentic, I'm inviting others to also be authentic. You and I share a passion around the importance of sharing stories, and that's the reason I do this podcast. I believe that by sharing our stories and being vulnerable, that we invite others to do the same and we create space. We also show others that they're not alone. And I think this is ultimately what creates that authentic connection that's so important and that we're all looking for. Something that's really interested me as I've been talking with individuals is the concept of grief. And you write in your memoir that your mom died 15 years ago and that this is something that you're still healing from. And I'm certain that you must have grief over the loss of the life that you thought you were going to have before you were diagnosed. And there's grief over so many kinds of loss. Do you believe that grief ever goes away? That's, that's, that's a tough question. Well, as long as we're losing and we are going to be losing something or someone every day, we are going to be grieving that person or that thing. So that grief is part of the, part of the lived experience of, um, of the human being. Uh, there are some major losses in our lives that, uh, that change our life course. Uh, loss of a loved one, uh, loss of a parent, Actually, with COVID-19, I'm talking to moms who lost their children to cancer. And that uh, every single one of them would say the most devastating loss a human being can endure. Loss of a child uh, that they, uh, uh, they, uh, that's part of their heart. This is, this is probably more difficult than loss of the person themselves. So that's, uh, that grief would, 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 come after. Would it, uh, is there a way to not live without it? I don't think it's, we, we need to not live with grief. I think grief is, is, is okay. I think over time, uh, our experience with grief can change. We could, uh, if we do our 
working of grief. We do our homework and we have the right support and we have the right community around and we have the right space in which we can share about grief. And this is, I would say this uh, on behalf of the moms who lost their kids. Uh, people in the community consider death as an awkward subject and they avoid it. So if you've lost dear person to you, uh, for example, for those moms, uh, people would ask, you know, how many children do you have? And they want to say that I have four, even if they only have three living and one in heaven. That is important for them. And they want to be invited to to share about the life of the person that, that, that that's no longer with us. And that's also important for them. Important for the person who's grieving to have space to, to, to share and to, 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 to bring back some of those memories. Over time, they may have the capacity to bring some of the, of the, of the joyful moments, you know, the quirky sides of that person who died, their silliness, you know, their laughs, what the jokes, or even, and even, that becomes even the, the more uh, advanced, uh, I'm advanced, I'm using a judgment, probably not the right word, in uh, the one form of, of dealing with the loss is also to be able to, at some point, or I, I would say, I would rephrase this to say, one thing that a person who is grieving could at some point arrive to is to be able to engage even with the mistakes of the person that they lost. Um, we are humans and we are. Those we lost, including my mom, uh, who again I lost in a tragic car accident, uh, have made mistakes. And uh, part of, of the person uh, person's own reconciling with their own narrative is to also reconcile that they did not have control over their narrative. At some point, many people have done things upon them that was not their the person's own choice. And uh, some of those things that were done to them were errors. And by having a space to be able to reconcile with that, um, I think the grief can be taken into a different uh, space. In the sense that uh, it's not, it doesn't become a, a black hole or a void that would suck the person in. It becomes uh, a space to remember, a space to bring the memories back, and space to, uh, to, to continue to live one's life with... Uh, while maintaining a presence for those who are gone. I want that myself. I would want, um, um, when I die, I want people to remember me. I don't want people to feel that, yeah, he was, you know, uh, I don't know if any people can be saying he was so amazing that I, uh, I'm devastated that he's gone. I, I don't want that, actually. That's kind of silly. And, and I hope don't no one would, would get to that place. But I want uh, I want people to remember me in the sense that, um, you know, he, he has done things, and this is what he said. This, these are the mistakes that he's done. And he tried, and he gave it his best, and he was authentic, and he was himself. These are things that I want to be remembered as, and these are things that I want to remember those who are gone as well. Um, and I have many reasons from the conversations with those, and everybody has, from conversations with those who were, who were gone to believe that people want to be remembered as who they are, as, as people who care, who love, but also as people who make mistakes. I think at the end of the day, we all want to be seen and we all want to feel that, that we matter. Uh, so where would you say that you turn to for inspiration? 
That is a very good question. I uh, I find inspirations in the books that I read. I read a lot of philosophy books, and I I find uh, the world of thoughts to inspire uh, my thoughts and uh, help me carry on. But if I think about this further, I think my philosophical readings, um, if anything, give me frameworks to engage better with uh, with the lived day to day life that I have. So what I what really philosophy gives me is uh, is those uh, those uh, tools with which I can have better conversations with people. So what drives my inspiration in the end is the conversation that I have uh, with with people. And I've been very privileged that uh, many have opened their spaces to me and, uh, and shared their stories. People with lung cancer, I've interviewed 48 people and they all shared uh, a lot of stories that they felt, many felt that they haven't told before to any person. So that's that's a huge privilege and that, that uh, enlightened my soul. Um, throughout also my research with uh, you know, patients, doctors, and now today with the COVID-19. And also in day-to-day conversations with people. I, uh, for some reason, I invite uh, uh, conversations that are intimate and, uh, and, and uh, I feel are deep and fulfilling. I mean, we, I also can have a little chatter about silly things, but I tend to provoke in people the desire to, to share intimately and I feel privileged to have that and those stories inspire me it's a gift to have people open up to you and 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 share the most intimate parts of themselves what is your greatest hope that is a very tough question very 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 tough question um I hope for many things um I hope well, first, now we're dealing with COVID, so I hope that uh, we can get over this as fast as possible with the least possible uh, hurts. And that's both at the level of, you know, people's health and, and lives and uh, the consequences from this pandemic on people's lives and psyche and finances, jobs, identities, all those. So that's, I hope that we can, we can do better and, and get out of this uh, soon. I also hope that in the public discourse, uh, more space be opened for people to participate. And I'll have to, to clarify what I mean by participate. By participating, I don't mean someone on Facebook uh, reposts some conspiracy theory shenanigan. That's not the participation that I want. Actually, the less people participate like that, the better. I do think uh, that people need to participate in sharing their authentic stories about their day-to-day life, about their feelings, their desires, their struggles, their uh, aspirations, their dreams, uh, and what they're doing to get there. I think we can do less sharing uh, about uh, false stuff, you know. There are, I, I come from, from a school of thought that believe that are, there are better truth and there are worse uh, um, statements about truth. In a sense, we can actually come to say, okay, this is 
true in fact, and this is false. So it troubles me that people want to participate by sharing all stuff that many of them can be actually uh, falsehood. I do think that there, and I hope that with the epi epidemic, that we're learning that actually spreading those uh, false stuff is actually damaging and devastating and it's harmful to the communities that are spreading those stuff. So people now that are going to the streets and saying, oh, this is hypocrisy, this is, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy or this is this or this is this is hoax, they're going to be affected. They're going to lose loved ones. And this, this devastates me, this, this, this bothers me, this troubles me. Uh, those people who say, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and I don't care, nothing can stop me because the virus is just a fake thing or not a real thing. They're going to be hurt, they're going to be affected and they potentially, if they get the virus, they can die. And that bothers me a lot. And this, if anything, this is, this is, this is a sign of how troubled our education system is, how troubled our, our, our modes of, of transmitting information that are true to the public. So I hope that at the end of this pandemic, we're going to, to ask those bigger questions so we can actually change that. So we can invite people to participate, participate in the sense of, okay, well, if this is a matter that affects you, if we're talking here about, about rationalizing care, we need to bring people who are affected by this to a public discourse so they can talk about it and express their interests and feelings and desires and thoughts. That is a genuine participation. This is a normative thing. Should we or should we not do? Well, we don't know. We only know if we ask people and we ask should we or should we not do. If we have a discourse about what's right and what's good, you need to bring people to the conversation so they can participate. Uh, what is the experience of the person like? Well, you need to hear from people. So you want to invite the person to participate so they can share with you about the experience. What is true? What is fact? Well, you don't need everybody to, to, to weigh in that. You don't need somebody who, who understands very little about uh, about medicine, viruses, or epidemics to be talking that uh, or judging the quality of scientific information. Let's leave science to the science people and invite people to participate by disseminating facts if they want, um, but abstaining from, uh, from uh, you know, spreading nonsense. That's my hope. I like that. My final question to you is, Morhoff, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, actually. I'm doing all right. I'm uh, finishing uh, uh, and the edit of the book. I've been spending quite some time uh, uh, revising and having a final version ready to, to be published. I'm going to have the book out on my birthday, May 23rd. So I have been busy uh, doing that and doing some final cleaning. Uh, but I feel I'm coming close to a, a good draft that I'm satisfied with and uh, I'm happy about. Authentic, yet um, done with style, and I hope will be meaningful to people who read it. So I'm doing well. Morhoff, thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely loved speaking with you and look forward to your memoir, Being Authentic, which will be published the end of May. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.